Hey dreamers, welcome back to another episode of the Dole and Dreams podcast, where today we will be taking a deep dive into the Disney vault. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and today I'm joined by actor, writer, YouTuber, and podcast creator, Ned Donovan. This week we're discussing the underrated 80s animated film that saved Disney animation, The Great Mouse Detective. The Great Mouse Detective is Disney's 26th animated film. It was released in 1986 during a period dubbed the Disney Dark Ages. For more on this era of Disney animation, check out episode 2 of The Little Mermaid for notes on the Dark Ages and the rise towards the Disney Renaissance. But back to this Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> like most Disney movies, the road to the 1986 release began much, much earlier. In fact, the idea of doing a Sherlock Holmes film with animals dates back to the 1970s, when they were producing The Rescuers. Joe Hale, a veteran layout artist, is credited with suggesting the adaptation of Eve Titus's book, Basil of Baker Street, but the project was almost immediately put in limbo due to the similarities of that and The Rescuers. But after some new competition entered the scene, Disney was forced to innovate. With former Disney creative Don Bluth's new animation studio, Sullivan Bluth Studios, on the market and doing well, the Disney company finally had some real competition during the 1980s. The Sullivan Bluth Studios' entrance led to a step up in content and quality over the whole animation world. Sullivan Bluth, if you're not familiar with, is the studio that led projects like The Secret of Nim, An American Tale, The Land Before Time, and they'd even go on to do some great, great movies like Anastasia, Thumbelina, and The Swan Princess. Even if you don't know them by name, you've definitely felt their impact. But now we've got to get back to The Great Mouse Detective. As I hinted before, the film is based on Eve Titus's children's book titled Basil of Baker Street. The book itself draws heavily upon the traditions of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes novels. Titus named the main character Basil after Basil Rathbone, a well-known actor who portrayed Sherlock Holmes on film. The story of The Great Mouse Detective follows Basil, a mouse who lives in the legendary 21B Baker Street at the home of Sherlock Holmes. One day when the daughter of a kidnapped toy maker comes seeking the prolific Basil of Baker Street to help find her father. Basil is apathetic to the little mouse girl's plight until he finds out that her father was kidnapped by none other than Radigan, the leader of the seedy underground of Mousedom. This revelation leads Basil, the young girl Olivia, and Basil's assistant, Dr. David Q. Dawson, through the gritty, dark streets of Victorian London, all on an adventure to thwart Radigan's attempt to take over all of Mousedom. Radigan's plan to use a mechanical stand-in for the Mouse Queen, who in turn declares him the supreme ruler. The whole movie culminates in a spectacular fight scene inside a Big Ben, leading our heroes to win the day. Despite the studio's original rejection of the project in 1982, Rob Clements proposed adapting the children's book again with story artist Pete Young to then-president and CEO of Disney Ron Miller, who immediately approved the project. At this time, the animators were becoming more and more displeased with the production of The Black Cauldron, and so Basil of Baker Street was pushed forward as an alternative project. However, 1984 would see the departure of Miller from Disney and the appointment of Michael Eisner, who is the former president of Paramount Pictures. With him, Eisner brought Jeffrey Katzenberg as the studio's chairman of Disney's film division, and deep enemy of the pod. After the two saw a story reel screening, they complained about the slow pacing of the story and demanded large, large rewrites before the animation could commence. In addition to the story demands, Eisner would slash the film's budget from $24 million to the original greenlit amount of only about $10 million. And they set a July 1986 release date, giving the studio just over a year to complete the film. This, unfortunately, would not be the end of unusual demands from Eisner. After the failed release of Paramount and Amblin's films The Young Holmes, Eisner was worried that the name Basil was too British and would be off-putting to American audiences, and so he would have the name of the movie changed to The Great Mouse Detective. This retitling would prove very unpopular among Disney filmmakers, and even led Ed Gombert to write a satirical inner office memo that was allegedly from studio exec Peter Schneider, which gave former Disney films generic descriptive titles like Seven Men Help a Girl, The Wonderful Elephant Who Could Fly, A Little Deer Who Grew Up, and A Boy, A Bear, and a Black Cat. But, like, the level of pettiness that this is brings me such joy I can't even begin to tell you. Despite all of these shakeups at the studio, the cast of the movie was <laughs> epic. 
I mean, the film features Barry Ingram as Basil, Vincent Price as Radigan, Val Betton as Major David, Major Dr. David Q. Dawson. We can't mess that up. And Candy Candido as Fidget, the peg leg bat. I mean, when you combine their talents with the direction of Ron Clement and John Musker, who would go on to direct uh, a little project called The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, and score and original songs by Pink Panther composer Henry Mancini, The Great Mouse Detective was absolutely set up for success in the wake of the disaster of the cult classic that is The Black Cauldron. With a short running time of 77 minutes, the movie makes every second of screen time count. This truncated running time led to rapid pacing that Eisner and co. desired, which admittedly actually helped the storytelling throughout the film. Boasting a meager budget of only about $14 million, the film grossed just over $50 million worldwide during its initial release, as well as an additional $13,288,756 during its 1992 retitled release, The Adventures of the Great Mouse Detective. This all over showing about $3.87 million total release in North America. It's very important to note that the movies of the Disney Dark Age actually did fairly well in the box office. That's because that is exactly what they were built to do, make money, and put kids' butts in those seats. During this period, the Walt Disney Company tended to just put just enough money into movies to get a good cast, a few catchy songs, and a good trailer, which got kids and, more importantly, the parents' interest flowing. But even in these dark ages, some gems like this one could definitely be found. The Super Carlin Brothers on YouTube put it best when they said, So a high-yield, low-cost project kept the studio running. It's a sustainable concept for a sunglass shop, but not for a hand-drawn animation studio. You stay right in your seats, and we'll be right back after this short break. Hey Dreamers, I wanted to talk to you about our Patreon. Now recently, after some of our interviews that I've pre-recorded, I just can't imagine putting some of this great content behind a paywall. So what we've done is we've gotten rid of all of our pledge levels except our basic $2 pledge level. Now that just lets you say, hey, I like Double Whips and Dreams and I really want you to continue doing what you do on the show. That's as simple as it is. Uh, so we're going to be dropping some really fantastic bonus content over the next six months that I think are going to be really bold, really dynamic, and really challenging some of what we've been talking about on the show. But stay tuned, because launching in January, we have our first Dole Up and Dreams merchandise item. It's a trading pin in true Disney fashion. I've custom designed a really fun and fantastic Dole Up and Dreams trading pin. More information is coming soon. Now back to the show. Welcome back, dreamers. Today, I have one of my absolutely favorite people in the whole world, Ned Donovan. Ned, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my God, hello, and thank you for having me. Of course. Ned, why don't you start off by telling the audience a little bit about who you are and kind of what led you to want to do this movie? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, hi, everyone. As mentioned, I am Ned Donovan. Uh, I am an actor, producer, writer uh, based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, right now, my project is called Encounter Party. It is a podcast of five professional actors and improv artists playing a Dungeons & Dragons campaign written by a writer and uh, playwright and artist. And uh, that is the what I spend a significant amount of my creative time on right now. I also have a second podcast called Living in Fantasy, which is... Um, the stories you don't get to hear about fantasy adventures. So our first episode was called uh, The Dragon Next Door. It is the story of a town's uh, economic downfall after a dragon moves into the area. It is dry news parody uh, told to, to feel like you're listening to a podcaster in an adventuring realm. Uh, and then I have been a musical theater performer and uh, actor for a little over a decade. And uh, that, and I am a big Disney fan. Um, specifically, though, which is weird, given what I just said, I have never been the hugest Disney musical person. Um, mm. All of my favorite Disney movies are, are uh, music lists. So I'm a huge fan of like my, my three absolute favorite Disney movies are this, which has some music, but not really uh, Robin hood and the rescuers down under. 
And uh, so mm. when, when I heard about this podcast and I, I, I heard that I, I was hopefully going to be a guest on it, I said immediately, well, I want to do one of those. I want to live in that space. And immediately uh, we settled on The Great Mouse Detective. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's one that's it's always Basil's always one of my favorite characters. And it's just one of those. And so when you were uh, when you pitched it, I was like, oh, I feel like this would be a perfect one for for Ned for us to meld up on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And just to plug, everybody should pause this right now. Go to wherever you get your podcast and download Encounter Party because it is fantastic. I've been powering through it over the last couple weeks, and it is just so good. It's so enjoyable. Give you guys that little plug. Well, thank uh, you. And and for oh, for the listeners course. out there, what we are trying to do is uh, it's to be an audio adventure. It is heavily edited. Uh, it is scored. It is sound designed to make it feel like an uh, an audio book or uh, an audio fiction piece rather than than an improv at a table. Which I think is one of those things that really kind of helps stand out. And honestly, it's one of those that I'm a little sad when my bus stop comes to have to get off to go to class because then I go, oh God, I got to pause it for a little while. And then I, because I just, <laughs> I want to stay so immersed in it uh, just because it's also so great having theater people talk about that idea of storytelling and, and what it means to sculpt the story when we're not presenting something on stage. So I think it's uh, really great. So kind of transitioning, talking about this idea of epic and, and storytelling, what are some things for you that kind of, stand out about uh, The Grey Mouse Detective that kind of sets it apart from some of the other movies in the Disney canon? Well, the first thing I think that's really interesting about this is this came in a time in Disney where they were really looking into the serialized movie. They were mm-hmm. they were writing for potential sequels. You know, like they got sequels out of a lot of the the other ones, but like Lion King wasn't written to be a sequel. You know what I mean? Like Beauty and the Beast wasn't written to have a sequel. Like none of these things were written to have that. They were standalone pieces. Whereas this very clearly was setting up a universe. You you you. I mean, and the rescuers got. It, right? You got the rescuers, you got the rescuers down under. This was a period of time where they were really testing the waters for a big release followed by a straight to VHS marathon system where they could capture the kids. Um, and so that was really something I found interesting in watching this was watching how they set that up. But the other thing that I loved about this, and I wrote it down like five times in my notes that I took that I'm sure I will refer to many times on this podcast, <laughs> uh, is the idea that this is one of the Disney movies that exists in the most real world. Like, yes, it's absurdist. It's, it's, you know, anthropomorphic mice and, and, and uh, an insane plot. But this one exists in a world with Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. This exists in a world with the queen, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a little different than even the real world of the rescuers where everything is just one click left of reality. Like when you look at the albatross Mm -hmm. air and things like that, but this one, like the very opening, kidnapping sequence is solidly scary because even with a bat with a peg leg it feels more real than most disney movies which i found fascinating absolutely well and they do a really great job and they do it in oliver and company as well which was the next movie that came out after this oliver and company was next Oliver and Company was next. God, yeah, in my Black head, Cauldron. those are so far apart. Okay. Yeah, it went Black Cauldron in 85, this in 86, and Oliver and Company in 87, and then 89 was Little Mermaid. It was a very weird time. It was the Disney Dark Age uh, when we almost lost all of Disney animation as a whole. Um, and so there's this kind of forebodingness of that almost uh, Sweeney Todd era of London. It's dark, it's dank, it's dismal. And so it's setting that tone of that adventure. And so when that first time that we get, you know, Fidget's peg leg, it's setting a little bit of danger that we normally won't get in Disney films until, you know, Nemo's mom is killed at the beginning of, you know, inviting Nemo. But it's those moments of they're setting out to tell an adventure. And we know from that first moment, it's going to be an adventure. Um, But then those dark moments are really dark. And in this movie, we kind of always live in that seedy underbelly of Victorian London. We never leave that. Um, And so I think, well, especially because this movie is only like 75 minutes. Which really, really I also didn't remember. Like, I remember Mm -hmm. it being longer. And, and, you know, this is a complete non sequitur. But this has been happening to me a lot. I I was... um, 
uh, on another podcast, not so recently, but talking about a non-Disney film. Um, and we all had the same reaction of being like, this movie is only 70 minutes. Like there, mm-hmm. there's something about this era that was, um, I don't know if it was attention spans were shorter. I don't know if budgets were less. I guess it was harder to do animation back then, but the length of storytelling is amazingly well compacted in this film. Well, so a lot of what happened was, um, it, this actually started being pitched back with during the rescuers in the late seventies. And they were like, no, this is, we can't do two different mouse movies. No. And then it kind of got brought up again in the eighties when black cauldron was just epically failing in production. So they quickly moved the movie when it was still called Basil of Baker street into production as an alternative in case black cauldron had to get pulled. They could throw Basil out quickly. Um, but then what ended up ended up happening is it kept getting seen at screeners and it just wasn't working for Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. So they like truncated the story. They wanted to tell it quick and dirty and they just kind of went with it, which this is why I think it is one of the shortest Disney movies, if not the shortest. Um, but it's impressively so, well, well done. Like the story is. zooms and nothing feels uh, lost in the process. Sometimes you watch these movies, and you're like, oh, we could have trimmed 20 minutes. And sometimes you mm-hmm. watch these movies, and you think we could have added 20 minutes. It would have been great. But this movie Absolutely. really nails it in terms of length to story to what to well-crafted storytelling. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it clips at the same pace that like a radio drama, which the BBC was doing at about this time, uh, and you know has been doing. But it, it kind of clips at that same pace that you would expect a Sherlock Holmes movie to. So I think in that it, it is it's effectively getting the most story for the least amount of frames because this is everything is hand drawn, um, including the the you know the clock they started the the clock tower they started using. Um, a CGI to draw it, but it still was before like the heavy computer animation. And so, um, it's interesting you yeah, say that because that sequence looks different, like from a style, it looks different than the rest of the film. Well, and it's because this was the first time that they kind of put everything in the computer and had the computer draw it out for them to be able to put it on and then they paint it on top of it. Huh. So it is stylistically very different from the rest of the film, but it was the first time in an animated film that we got the scope of that. Right. It was, um, it's also, massive and scary. Yeah. Also what at this time we got the first Don Bluth movies, which is for the first time giving Disney, um, competition in the animation sector, possibly ever. And so even though, you know, secrets of Nim came out around the same time as black cauldron and it failed, um, five goes West came out or, uh, I'm sorry, the American tale, the first five movie came out with this and completely outsold it in theaters. And so Disney's feeling that competition and it's, they're ready to pull animation at any point. And so, but this, um, is about the time. And for me also, the cast of this is just so incredible and Radigan specifically for me as Vincent Price is just something that sets a villain apart from what we'd had before that always been scary, but they'd always been very one dimensional and there's something really rich and kind of varied about this kind of ridiculous fop that we have, who is this giant rat villain who doesn't want to be called a rat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the voice acting in this is absolutely stellar. Absolutely stellar. I mean, I'm scrolling through the IMDb page as we speak. Um, and, and, and it's a who's who of really interesting mm-hmm. voice actors from the time. Uh, and I think, I think we forget just how good those actors were. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what I really didn't remember about this film was the music. Like, that's never been what... I, when it happened, mm-hmm. I was really taken aback. I had forgotten about the couple of songs in here that are really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wrote down is why do people not do Radigan's song for auditions? It's fantastic. Right. It's one of, it's one of my favorite Disney villain songs uh, of all time. When I worked at, uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. I uh, was in the Evil Queen Sweet Shop, so everything we had was villains. And that the Radigan song would play about twelve times a shift, and people would go, "I just don't know that song." And we'd be like, "It's the Great Mouse Detective," and they go, "Huh? Never seen it, I guess." And I was like, "Why? It's so good, and he's such a good villain." Um, Channel Awesome on YouTube brought up a really interesting thing about it when I was watching through their um, video about this: is that most 
Disney characters, they're really well performed, but you can still tell they're being performed in a sound booth by an actor. Sure. Where where Vincent Price exudes through the character and it feels so organic and so natural. And that's one of those things that just makes him kind of so terrifying and so devious is because it's not just an actor in a booth and a mic. He's actually performing this with every fiber that he would if he were on screen playing this character. Right, for sure. I mean, that was always what I loved about uh, this movie, but also Rescuers Down Under, is it's one of the ones where Mm -hmm. the the characterizations of these films felt so much more alive to me. And I think it's interesting that they are the ones that try to exist in the most reality one of all of the Disney Mm -hmm. films. Like, they aren't living in a fantasy realm. They are in our world. Yes, a a, a ridiculous version of our world, but they are here. And I've always wondered if, if that's led itself to a, to a acting style that has always resonated with me since I was a kid. I think so. And honestly, if you told me that the rescuers and great mouse detective were the same part of the same universe, I would believe them. I mean, honestly, if if Disney told me that I was going to get a crossover film with the rescuers and the great mouse detective, I would be like, give me, take my money, like take it. You can have it. I will. I would love that. I love this idea. Like I was playing with it earlier. I was like, what if Olivia during, you know, you know, 15 years later is grown and she's assisting Dawson and Basil and she starts the rescue aid society. It'd be great. Like what if that, what if that starts during world war one? That's actually seems like a huge idea. Helping the mice help humans through this giant catastrophic disaster. We'll get into that a little bit later. I want to delve into that. Um, so, you know, we both really like this movie. Um, yes. I had, I was really, really glad I got to revisit this because it's one that I always saw every time it goes back up on a, a streaming service. I'm like, oh, good, I can watch it. And then I just never do. And so this gave me a chance to go, oh, I don't have this in my collection. Let's just buy it. And keep That's it in what collection. I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if anybody really likes it and, uh, you know, we have Disney Plus coming, which is going to change the game for a lot of people. We will have everything in the canon ever available at our fingertips. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I paid $10 on Amazon and it was, it's a target right now too, as well. Uh, great. But, um, so we love it, but do you think it actually was a critical success with the critics and fans when it came out? Well, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but, uh, I was not alive when this movie came out. Oh, uh, so so it's hard for me to gauge the the zeitgeist of the time prior to my existence. Um, <laughs> what I can say is I owned it on VHS in the early 90s and mm-hmm. I watched it repeatedly and loved every second of it. So I feel like especially if it's coming on the heels of Black Cauldron, I feel like mm-hmm. it would have been a success. Yes. Yeah, great. That is a great answer, and I was setting you up there. Yeah, no, and like I was one, so like I didn't actually have a memory of this movie probably until I was middle school anyway. But there was a 1992 re-release of this on VHS for the first time, and that's when the soundtrack was released. That must have been so, the one I had. Yeah, so and well, and it was renamed The Adventures of the Great Mouse Detective at that point, which oh, is what? why the VHS says that. Yeah, they renamed it for a second time, so they just added The Adventures of. Um, but it, did we you know, get more it, adventures? Am I? Am I? Did is the, I thought we, this was the only one. Not, it is the only one, yeah, but they okay. changed the title for some reason. I feel like they might have been amping up to... Now, I couldn't find it in any of my research that a sequel was ever talked about, but we're going to talk about it in a little bit. But the end of the movie literally sets up another movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The end of the it's movie like the, is a here we go. Yeah, which also there's so many Sherlock Holmes books that we could parallel another 14... Basil movies. Um, but, you know, it ultimately did receive two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, uh, who were some of the harshest film critics at the time. Sure. I'd argue of the last hundred years. Well, and they but generally didn't Ron, like kids movies. No, they didn't like kids movies. And that was a big deal because uh, the Disney Dark Age was really about just putting out a movie to get kids in the seats, had a very simple plot, had some catchy music, and then all of their money went into the actors. Huh. So the Rescuers, the Aristocats, uh, you know, those, the, you know, those, those films. Um, but according to Rotten Tomatoes, it has a massive critical approval of 82% from critics um, and then 79% from an audience score, which in my opinion is a little lower than I was expecting, but knowing where they were with 
the Black Cauldron and that they had steadily been going down to the point where nobody really wanted Disney animated films anymore. It made sense to me. Um, and that combined, it did about 50 million worldwide in box office, which today is nothing for what we're thinking about. But when Black Cauldron didn't even make back the money that cost the movie to make, um, this led Disney to go, you know what? Let's keep it going a little bit more. Let's keep pushing some things out. And that was the point that they pushed forward. Oliver, they had already started working on Mermaid. They started working on Aladdin at this point as well. Um, and this is the point where we also get uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Like, we're, we're getting that revolution that Disney's about to step into their renaissance, um, which you know, is it's kind of a big deal. But, it, it, you know, it is interesting to me that so in the grand scheme of things that there's still so little memory of this film. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's one that I forget about. And in fact, I forget it's Disney so much because I associate so much of Disney with musicals. Like Mm -hmm. I forget if you had told me this was DreamWorks, I would have believed you. If you told me this was Paramount, I would have believed you. Like there's nothing that sets this as a Disney film in the way so many of the others are. Right. Well, and it's true. I mean, and we're about to see with Mermaid where they actually make the Disney musicals more like a classic musical because before they had songs and things, but they weren't necessarily in the same structure. But, you know, I agree with you. And it's one of those that, too, like we would start to see those coming out because like, you know, in 2099, 12 years later, we get Tarzan, which isn't a musical, but it has an amazing musical score. Or we right. get Brother Bear, which isn't a musical, but would have an amazing musical score. So I honestly think this showed them that it was like, oh, we can do movies without songs that are particularly driving the plot. Or, you know, you can have one or two performances in it. Because it seems weird to not have the villains sing a song about how wonderful and dastardly they are. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, but I think it sets that tone that they could start doing two very different animated films um, that would ultimately lead to the Big Hero Sixes and, the you know, the, the movies that we have today that don't have a single musical component other than a really cool score. Right, right. So I do think it's interesting, uh, as we talked about, that it seems set up to be a sequel. And we're in a point where, and I know you and I get very heated about this on Facebook, uh, when Lion King, the remake, was coming out and they're calling it live action. It's not live action. It's CGI. No, it's it's it photorealistic CGI. Photorealistic yeah. version. Well, a couple months ago, they announced that they wanted to remake The Green Mouse Detective with a CGI film. And so, but, you know, as we're talking, maybe instead of making a new film why don't we get a sequel? Like the end of the movie sets it up. So why remake something when you could arguably go, Hey, let's just make another one. And then, you know, have it jarringly be put in the, the new animation. I don't agree with that, but you know, why do you think they would want to remake it instead of doing a sequel? So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Winnie the Pooh was a Disney film, correct? Yes. So the Winnie the Pooh film was the last hand-drawn animation Disney film, if I remember correctly. The one that came out in like 2011, 2012? Yes. So uh, Yeah, around the same time. That Princess and the Frog, all of that, yeah, some, a lot of that is the, the last like hand-drawn-y. So uh, part of my reaction to this is this is one that it wouldn't bother me. And the reason is it sets up being a serial so well that honestly I would as much – especially because I'm a big Sir Arthur Conan Doyle fan. And the thing about that show that I talk about a lot is that, um, I mean, that show, those books, is that even though BBC's Sherlock is incredible, absolutely incredible, Elementary Mm -hmm. is a much better representation of Sherlock Holmes to me because those books are serialized, whereas the BBC Sherlock is one long arc that that the books never were. So in that vein... I would, if you were to tell me that they were going to be remaking this in a different animation style, I do think I would want them all to have the same animation style. I think I would find a new, st- a, a sequel that was a completely different universe visually, utterly jarring. So in that sense, right. I would want to remake if because I think this is a prime place where Disney can kick off a universe, right? And and if they're going to have Disney Plus, honestly, give me a twenty-two minute, half hour serialized animated series of, Mm -hmm. of, of Basil and Dawson. Like, uh, yeah, 
Absolutely. Like, I think this is prime for a remake. One, and I don't want it to be a remake. I actually think we can let this movie be amazing and wonderful Mm -hmm. and completely separate from whatever they're going to make. You know, I sort of akin it to, I'm a big, I'm a big Trekkie and uh, Star Trek 2009, I think was so wonderful because the first thing they did was remove themselves from the greater Star Trek universe. Yeah. Like they didn't, they rewrote it completely. Now, then of course the later movies, they kind of blew that up. But that first movie was so wonderful because they said like, yes, the other things existed and this, we are doing something different and it's a new universe with a new parallel, whatever. And that's what it is. And I sort of, I would rather, if they were going to be remaking this, have them start over and maybe they don't even use Radigan, right? Like, I think it's a really Mm -hmm. great, you know, not to jump ahead, but I think the end of the film on Big Ben uh, is so cool because it it so closely mirrors the Moriarty over the waterfall in the original Sherlock Holmes, but I don't know that I need this story retold, but I would love these characters remade. I would mm-hmm. rather someone hand a storytelling team the concept and say, write whatever you want, than I would have them remake this film. Yeah, honestly, a thousand percent. I love that. I think that's a great idea. And honestly, yeah, if they're going to serialize it, if they're going to do several of them, Radigan to me seems like a villain that you want to work up to. Forever. Yeah, wanna, yeah. If you're going to serialize yeah. it, give me Radigan as the big baddie. Yeah, yeah, we want to work through the minor stooges up to it. And honestly, I think we're at a point where people are used to an expanded universe because when this movie first came out, we didn't have an expanded universe yet in really any any films. So I think, but now, especially because Disney, I don't want to say is perfected because Marvel's far from perfect. Well, they're also really the only one who've done it. Right. DC's trying, but you know, they're, you know, they're doing their thing, but they've got Marvel, they have Star Wars, you know, so they, they, they've got these things where, you know, we have sequels of, you know, all the Disney movies now that they're used to building a universe within a universe. So I feel like this would be something really cool. And I don't, I, to me, I would almost worry that like that new CGI the the super realistic looking stuff would be off putting for this. I would rather just go with like the new digital Disney art style. I'd be curious, um, you know, something that I think is really interesting about animated films of this time and something that I love about animated films of this time is um animated films allow for a absurdity of spatial awareness and movement Mm -hmm. like um you know like a great sight gag in this movie is the crumpet that comes out of olivia's pocket because it like can't fit and then this massive crumpet exists that toby eats like so fun and so interesting and i think like there's something really interesting to be said about that setup that you can't do in photorealism as soon as you go to photorealism you have to play by the rules of realism but i also Mm -hmm. think i will say one of my favorite movie series to have come out recently is the Paddington series. And mm, I think yeah. it is so wonderful. And if you gave me a Stuart Little style animation of these characters set in a world, I, I don't know that I want a Ratatouille of these guys. I think it would be really, I think if we went photorealism, I'd want a Roger Rabbit it. I would want these characters oh, yeah. in a world with real humans. I think that would be very interesting to me if you were going to go that route. However, I wouldn't want a Lion King world, like a Jungle Book world. I'd rather have the Jungle Book with the kid Um, or a Pete's Dragon, the new new remake of Pete's Dragon that I'm one of 12 people that liked. We're not talking about that. Okay, great. Keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. We we will have a conversation about that later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but no, I think you're absolutely right. But I, yeah, no, I think there is so much the mouse world parallels the human world in this animated film in such a way that it doesn't make sense that they are not that they're not interacting with them in other ways other than like Dawson catching a ride with Watson on the same carriage there's too many parallels right so I think I yeah I think you would bring up a really good point that you would I would want to see them interact together um maybe not have Basil and Sherlock ever interact but uh, you know, I think maybe 
other people in the world. Well, I think it could actually a, be really fun. Here's a question for you, because I've actually thought about this. This has haunted my brain since I was very young. So, you know, I'm going to pose a question to you. I don't know that I've ever spoken out loud, but it has kept me awake at night since I was a small child. Oh, oh, which is this. Do you think that the characters in this film are speaking human English? Like, could Basil <sighs> and Sherlock interact? I don't think they can. Oh, yeah, that's very unclear because they write. We see that Radigan has written a letter for for uh, for Fidget. I almost called it Figment. Uh, for yeah, Fidget. he's written a letter for um, Fidget. But then, and you have Toby, who obviously can't speak, and I forget the cat's name right. now. What's the cat's name? Oh God! Oh, I literally watched it two hours ago. I oh my it. God! I feel. Oh my God! But that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, yeah. So that I had that same thought of okay, and then we get that weird octopus that's like a vaudevillian performer in the bar. Back up! I wrote down. We're just going to sidebar. I have a big note yeah. on my screen in all caps. It's uh, 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 before I say this out loud. Uh, I'm assuming we're going for a PG rating here. Oh yes. Okay. Probably. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I wrote juggling octopus is a mm, all star, and these ruffians should be slapped. I love juggling <laughs> octopus. I'm all about juggling octopus. I'm not about the unicycle act that comes after juggling octopus, but no. juggling octopus was rad, and I hated those ruffians for not liking it. Well, I live for a cephalopod, so like honestly, more of it. But it was just weird that that was one of like the only other anthropomorphic animals that we yeah, got because absolutely. obviously dogs and cats are in their form as we know them but then the mice and then weird octopus boy but like everybody else it's just the mice have society and none yeah of the, the reality one do. reality two in this movie is very unclear yeah it's very strange but i think we're you know that's those things that we're looking at it as storytellers at that point but i think that is something that they would need to rationalize and come to terms with in order uh to make this again i do love the idea of uh some mice a very fat mouse and a very skinny mouse riding a, a giant basset hound i think that'd be so cute i think it'd be the cutest thing ever <laughs> um but yeah i think well because then my only thing is Radigan is supposed to be so much larger than everybody else. And even then proportionally rats aren't that much bigger than mice. So I, I you know, I just wonder proportion wise what we're going to do, but I guess they'll answer that question when we see the movie. That's true. So, and you know what? Radigan should be, if you go photorealistic, Radigan needs to be a hulking, massive, terrifying thing. I want a New York city, Pizza subway rat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As rat again. Yeah, absolutely. Like a house cat sized rat. <laughs> yes. No, no question well, and then, whatsoever. Well, and then my question is do we want it set in Victorian London or do you want it set in the contemporary world and maybe it doesn't even have to stay set in London? Do you want it set in London? Yes, it's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, has to be yeah. London. Uh, I mean, like, that's, that's, you know, one of my complaints with Elementary, even though I think Lucy Liu is the real star of that show. Um, yes, she is. But I, 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 it needs to be London for me. Um, if they go photorealistic, I think I would prefer modern day. If they go animated, mm-hmm. I think I would prefer period. Yeah, me too. I agree. Also, just because period adds so much more cost that they, that would get taken away from Agreed. post-production. Agreed. So um, just because even, you know, even with Mary Poppins Returns, the costumes were beautiful, but you could tell they stretched that budget for everything they had. Yeah, for sure. Everything that was worth to them. Um, so casting, if we're playing this game, and I know we love to play this game, who, because obviously none of the cast is still alive right. that would play the principal characters. So who would you like to see? Even, even if we said, you know, the, the toy maker, uh, Basil Dawson, Radigan and the queen. If we went, if we went that way, who, who would you think? Okay. All right. Ready? Oh, first of all, I just want to say, by the, by the way, my, my hot take for this movie is that fidget is smarter than Basil. Uh, oh, the decisions made by Fidget in this movie are so smart, and I hate uh, how Fidget is treated. Um, okay, so for me, Radigan, um, the the person they would obviously give it to is going to be Benedict Cumberbatch because he has that same kind of like f- foppish, deep voice nature to him. Um, yeah. And I don't know that I, I hate the decision, um, but I, I I think he's probably the most famous currently active 
British actor who would have that right gravitas for that role. Um, that they also own for uh, however many more contracts they have him on. Right, for. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, I yeah. think I would want Basil to be played by uh, maybe Mark Strong. Um, oh, I think he would be, he's, he's usually villain. evil, but I yeah. think that's just like, because he has a shaved head. I think if you took his voice <laughs> and you put it behind a character, I think he would be a really interesting Basil. Um, yeah. you know, I was first leaning Ray Fiennes in my head, but I think he is too recognizably, uh, Voldemorty now. Um, yes, and, yes. and so I don't think it would play right, but I think Mark Strong has a, has a whimsical side to him that we don't get to explore that much that mm-hmm. I think would be a really interesting choice. Um, I think if it's just voice acting, like you want someone who has that same tone and timbre as a Michael Caine, uh, in yeah. as Dawson, um, and it could be Michael Caine, right? Like, again, if it's just voice, it, oh, yeah. it, there's no reason why it couldn't. Um, so in that regard, I would be really interested. Um, let's see. In terms of uh, Flaversham, 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 mm-hmm. um, I think the toy maker. Oh, wow. The toy maker might be the hardest part of this. Um, because Dame Judy Dench is the queen. Let's, let's be a hundred percent clear. Oh, um, Dame Judy, if she's going to be in that same role. Now I would love to find a way to get uh, Emma Thompson in anything, but I don't think she's that role. Right. So, so if it's the queen as it exists in the original, I think it's gotta be Dame Judy. Um, in Mm -hmm. terms of the toy maker, I would, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have a good answer to this. Oh, no, no. I think I do. I think it would be a really interesting oh my god help me i think it'd be a really interesting choice for um who's who's king speech who won the oscar, oh, um, oscar for king speech and yeah. is in Kingsman? Uh, in and, oh god why i'm so mad i'm forgetting this um, oh um colin firth colin firth i think he's my toy maker Oh, he's so sweet too. He's so delightful. Yeah, and he was just in Mary Poppins Returns. Great. So maybe, maybe they've got him for a couple more movies. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that'd be super cute. I mean, you could always cast Emma Thompson as um, uh, Basil's housekeeper. It's oh, very yeah, especially if she Potts. became more of a role in the reimagined thing, she'd be fantastic yes. at that. Well, especially if she's more like how they utilize her in Sherlock, which I love how they utilize her in Sherlock. Agreed. If they just, you know, she's she's part of that team. She's the home base. Yeah, absolutely. I think that could be cute. Okay, what about Fidget? Because Fidget's such a cool character. Fidget, I think, um, I think you can get away with almost anything for Fidget, right? Because the mm-hmm. voice is so distorted. Um, mm-hmm. I would love to hear... I mean, like, if we want to stay in the Disney actor, like, I think it'd be really interesting to have Fidget be, like, a, a John Boyega or, like, have Fidget be a um, uh, an Alan Tudyk. Like, someone who does... Oh, someone Alan Tudyk voices. <laughs> yeah, but Alan, he's yeah. done it all so much. I want to almost, like, avoid him, right? Like, I love... Yeah. He's one of my favorite actors of all time, but, like, I want to give someone else that shot. Um, as I list a bunch of famous actors who don't need that shot. Uh, exactly. <laughs> no, you know what? Like, yeah, I want Fidget to be, I want Fidget to be someone like weird and fun. Like you could honestly give it to a Tom Hiddleston. You could give it to a, you could give it to any of, I want someone with like some personality that you can distort the crap out of because that character is nice. so fun. Yeah. I love that. No, I love all of that. I think that's really fantastic. So is there anything, you know, just thinking about story-wise, is there anything you would change from the original film storytelling-wise? Because I'm sure they're going to make it a little bit longer. If in my head, I feel like they'll probably have it be about a 90-minute length. So not adding too much. It's about 15 minutes, but a lot can happen in 15 minutes. A movie can derail in 15 minutes. So is there anything you would change, anything you'd want to add? I wrote a bunch of weird weird things that struck me as weird or funny in the trope of the time. Uh, Like some of the notes I wrote are, you know, pretty obvious like i wrote toby is the goodest boy because toby is the goodest boy he's the goodest boy boy. i love so so i think the toy chase sequence in this movie is one of the most wonderfully built things they've ever made it Mm -hmm. feels so real despite being so absurd right but there's something about it to how well it's built that it's really evocatively real um inside Mm -hmm. this absolutely insane concept um Mm -hmm. There were a couple of tropes in there that I wrote like there's like 
Fidget's way of attacking them is to roll things at them that you really could just move left or right and it would miss you, yet they ran away and almost died like eight times. It's one right. of my favorite tropes that never makes sense in Chase Hukins is just like step to the left and you're good. Um, and then I, I, I really, I, I don't know what it is in society. I don't. I get that dogs are awesome. But like this dogs are good, cats are evil thing is so weird to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so weird to me. I think it's really wonderful that a rat has a cat as a pet because oh. it, it, it shows Radigan's power so fantastically. Um, like I think that's interesting to me. Uh, but I, I definitely – I, I I think from a story perspective, this this movie is tight and simple. And I think if you were to make it again and try to make it longer, I think I would want to shy away from getting too charactery. Like mm-hmm. I don't need to see a love interest for Basil. I don't need. God, no, God, I don't no. need those things. I just. I think I want it to live in this same space, and I think I'd want them to make a decision as to what if they're going more into the reality of this movie and allowing it to be absurd and weird, or if they're leaning into reality one and having to to pull back from that choice. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. And no, I, it's something too that I thought earlier. I was like, I always forget about the cat from this movie because she's never included in any art or like right now at Disney parks, we have a lot of Disney dogs, Disney cats merchandise separate from each other. And they're really cute, but she's literally never included on any of that. She's and, only and in Radigan, two scenes, right? She's only in two scenes. But even then, like Radigan, it takes a lot for if there's a villain set and they go, oh, God, we need another. Well, we got that rat guy. Let's throw him in, I guess. But Radigan is in villainous, at least the board game. It's he is. I need to get that expansion. Yeah, I haven't gotten that one yet. It's so God, that game is so much fun. I also just love the Disney villains. And I was talking about this with my guests with our Little Mermaid episode, which is episode two. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and watch it or listen to it. Watch it. Good Lord. Listen to it. Um, And it's one of those things that this was the point where we were starting to get villains where people were going, is it wrong that I'm kind of rooting for that villain? Because when I was watching it today, I went – Man, Basil gave up so quickly and is being a mopey sad boy when they are in that trap. And he's just going to let all four of them die because he's being mopey sad boy until Watson says something that makes him genius green eyed boy. And so it's one of those things that I was like, I kind of root for Radigan the whole time. But then go, no, feasibly he has he's the villain. He has to lose the day. But he's still kind of like way more likable than Basil, which to me is still paralleling with. The idea that he's Sherlock Holmes, right? Sherlock is not a particularly likable person. No, but I, and I do think that that Basil is more likable than Sherlock in the way Sherlock is is portrayed. Um, yes. I, I, you know, I think what is really interesting about this movie as well, like like the plot that Radigan has constructed, is so strange. And mm-hmm. I think about this a lot. And when I was watching the movie again, I was like, I wonder why they made the choice to have the queen toy be not very viable. Like, what was the choice to made to have it feel like it wasn't a very good clockwork queen? I was very right. curious by the choice there. I, I was curious what it was, what they were trying to say about Radigan, what they were trying to say about the toy maker, what they were trying to like. It, it usually when you made this version, you would come out with a robot that nails it. Like every movie mm-hmm. does that, but this one like has a clear power cable and it bounces around all weird. Like I was very curious who made the decision to have the queen wind up toy be just kind of, kind of bad. Yeah. Well, especially after we've seen that beautiful flower. Oh my God, to the that's stunning. But, oh, gorgeous. But I, I think, you know, I do think a lot of that is to the idea that he put his heart and soul and pure love into that toy for Olivia. Whereas he's being like pushed in like 48 hours to make this like not so believable version of the queen. And I love that their queen, the queen mouse is a little kooky, like Queen Victoria really wise. Like, you know, so I appreciated that. But, yeah, no, I I agree with you, especially because the whole audience's perspective when they when she's like, Radigan will be the king. And everybody's like, wait, what? Who? We hate that guy. And so I was like, wait, 
I'm confused suddenly. No one likes him. Okay. Why? Why are they? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those moments I went. Okay, don't think about it too much or it'll fall apart. And that's part of maybe where I would I would want to rewrite is the actual mm-hmm. denouement of this movie makes not a ton of sense in the way that Disney tends to tie things together. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. And so this is kind of a hard to avoid with a lot of our villains. Um, there's been a lot of critique of Disney films uh, because of obvious queer coding of villains and, you know, during this time, being the fop was something that would happen to, you know, British aristocracy. If you had money, you wouldn't be as masculine. But and Vincent Price always had a little bit of a dandy foppishness to him. But there is a definite queer coding to Radigan in many ways in his cats, you know, in these things. Is that something you think we would want to avoid in a new Radigan or would we kind of want to continue to lean into that? I think the question is why you're making choices. Like, um, I'm not a good person to speak on this as a cisgendered straight white man, but I, I, in movies that I've watched in the past, I sit there and think, Ooh, this did not age. Well, that never once hit me with Radigan. It doesn't feel for instance, one of my favorite movies, this is not a Disney film, but one of my favorite animated movies is Cats Don't Dance. And uh, <gasps> yes. one of the things that struck me when I was talking Cats Don't Dance not long ago, and I, I on another wonderful podcast, uh, shout out Movie Musical Shakedown, um, one of the things that I really took away, there's this moment where King Kong, like they walk up to Kong, like, hey, Kong, and he turns around and he's this giant queen and like the joke is like isn't it funny that this big gorilla that scares everyone is actually just like a queenie bit and Mm -hmm. i couldn't i was so hit by it because it was so that was the joke the joke was like wouldn't it be funny if this gorilla's sexuality was gay and Mm -hmm. i i don't feel that way with radigan at all nor do i really feel it with Jafar, right? Like another one. There's something mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. I think, I think it has to do with maybe not the writing, but the actors who were hired to portray and how they Absolutely. chose to respect that choice. Um, it doesn't really feel to me like Radigan is sending up gay people. It feels to me like Radigan is sending up a version of the aristocracy that he was never allowed to be in because he's a rat. Absolutely. No, I agree with you there a thousand percent. So, yeah, it never really hit me that way um, as it has with other films. Sometimes I watch old movies and I think, "Ah, I can't I can't do this. Like I my moral sensibilities have adjusted for a 2019 time and I I, I can't watch this. Never once did I feel that way watching this film. Great. Well, and that was going to be kind of my next question. I mean, Chris, also like after this, the next one, you know, the next movie, it's, you know, Oliver and company. It's so di- dynamic and interesting, all the characters. But then I have cannot the believe that that movie came out right after this. Like that blows my mind. Continue. A single year later. God, and I love Oliver I and company. I associate that movie with like the late 90s in my head. Mm-hmm. Nope, late eighties. Wow. Late eighties. Wow. Yeah, it was it was when Bette Midler was in Disney's pocket because Disney was making so many adult films that she was in, like Touchstone films. So she was in Disney's pocket, and so it made sense. Also, she's perfect for that poodle role. We'll do Oliver and Company on an episode. Let us know on social media if you would like to see us do that movie. Mm, I need no excuse call to watch me back. It. I want to do it. With you. <laughs> um, but even Ursula, I feel like at no point do Disney villains, even though obviously there is an other aspect of them that feels different than the very heteronormative prince and princess, I don't feel like they're demonizing queer people in a way that they're going, oh, they're villains because they're queer, or Ursula's evil because she's supposed to be a drag queen character. Um, Where in other characters, where in other movies, I feel like because Disney wasn't specifically going, they're gay. You know, it was just a they were so different than everyone else that was taken for this, you know, kind of other. Yeah, I think so, I think there's something to be said. I think if you look at Disney's canon as a whole, there was a hard conversation to be had with Disney with why they made the choice to consistently make the villain 
a stereotypically queer character or at least mm-hmm. showcase stereotypically queer traits. But I think if you if you go into the micro, right, like that's talking in the macro. But if you go into mm-hmm. the micro, I don't think the problem here is that the character has those foppish tendencies. It's that mm-hmm. if you look at Disney's canon as a whole, the foppish tendencies become the villain so often that that becomes a problem. But the individual right. pieces of art don't necessarily feel problematic to me. I agree. And honestly, it shows that they did research to the time period because a lot of times where they exist is where they would have existed. Like Radigan is a very believable person in the aristocracy. And that's why I almost don't question it because this was a standard trait for heterosexual men of the time. So it's, it's why it doesn't necessarily bother me, but you know, because we have to talk about looking at everything through a 2019, 2020 lens. It's something that, you know, will continually get brought up, but a lot of uh, journalists have brought up, you know, because we've had the live action remake of, of Aladdin now and they pulled all of that foppishness out of Jafar it made him a much less interesting character there wasn't a lot for that actor to do you know the actor didn't do a lot with it so it's one of those it's like it's not necessarily a bad thing because they weren't demonizing or attacking but it also means that maybe they're a little less interesting character because the animated characters gave so much to work with and now we've seen such a presence of like the villains are as popular as the princesses which I love yes I I agree with that wholeheartedly so I mean we've kind of talked about it a little I think this movie stacks up beautifully in a contemporary viewership as you know I would feel great sitting down and showing this to my kid it is you know it could be a little scary at points but like it's a movie that I don't sit down and worry about at any point going oh, my nostalgia goggles version of this is not what it actually is like. I think this movie holds up so beautifully. No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I I think this is not a movie... I also think, frankly, it's tamer than most of the Disney films. This feels like a movie you can watch with your kids when you don't want to worry about traumatizing them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, especially... I mean, nothing could be as scary as Black Cauldron, frankly. Um... Which will be an upcoming episode. I mean, that's an interesting episode Uh, for me because I love those books. So uh, mm -hmm. I I, I don't actually associate those with Disney. I feel like Disney bought a a rights when they were trying to capitalize on Lord of the Rings. But like I, I, I don't associate that in my head in the same kind of space. But like, Mm -hmm. honestly, like Lion King scares me. Like that's a scary film. I was heavily traumatized as a child watching that. I loved it. But like the the stampede and the death of Mufasa is brutal peak heaviness for me. Yeah, absolutely brutal. Well, just interesting to talk about when, you know, talk about Disney wanting to capitalize on Lord of the Rings. At the same time, uh, they had also bought the rights to uh, uh, Ballad of Fire and Ice. What is Game of Thrones? Essentially what would become Game of Thrones. They also bought the animation rights for the first book or two that were out at the time. At the same time that they had the rights for Black Cauldron. So I'll get into that later on that episode. But yeah, I thought it was very interesting. And then obviously you can't quite Disney-fy Game of Thrones. No. At all. No. So, uh, as funny as an animated Tyrion Lannister would be, um, uh, why hasn't Peter Dinklage been cast in a Disney movie yet? He's a great actor. He was. He's in uh, Thor. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. He's in, yes, he's in Ragnarok. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I love that movie. Um, but I'm just surprised, like, animated wise, they haven't used him because he has such a really dynamic voice as well. Sure. Well, any uh, any other thoughts uh, that just kind of jumped out at you or just were banging you over the head during your rewatch? We've covered most of the things um, that I have on my notes. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Um, the sound design in this film, as animated mm-hmm. Disney movies go, is dreadful. There is not oh, a lot yeah. of ambiance. There is almost no atmosphere. The final sequence, the clock sequence, that is so visually interesting and fun, is it, there's practically no sound in it. Like, it, there's something about this movie that felt to me like it was missing a significant amount of sound design. And I was really curious by that because that's something I usually associate with Disney movies as a whole. But this movie, like watching it and listening to it, I kept being like, I'm not hearing horses or that doesn't feel right to me. Or in the clock sequence, I was like, why are there no clock sounds? 
Right. Well, I, you know what, I might chalk a lot of that up to the budget issues they had. So it was originally pitched at about $14 million. And then as they were going through the storyboarding and the, the kind of where they do the rough pencil anim- animations through to, to show it, it got up to the point where they were like, we really need about $25 million to do this movie. And Eisner barely wanted to green light the movie. And so he slashed it back to that original $14 million. So I think sound might have been one of those things that just suffered at the end of the day. Also, I think they had about they also pushed forward the release date. So instead of being like uh, a November release, it got a July release. Okay. So they had about it. They had about a year to finish this movie from like raw pencil form to actual broadcast in theaters. They had about a year to finish it up. So it's it's uh, I I maybe chalk it up to that. Also, I mean, also just because who knows? I, I, you know, we weren't there. Um, the have you seen the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty? I have not. It would be one I would check out. It's it's kind of a, it covers eighty four to ninety four roughly, and kind of everything that was happening at Disney Studios at that point. And they were they were all ready to be fired at any point. They were all expecting to be fired and walk away. So I feel like at the end of the day, that sound might have been that thing that just didn't. Make it because I, you know, I was um, thinking the same thing because, like, even in Oliver and Company, you hear each individual raindrop. Right. You hear the you hear the car drive from one speaker to the center out the other side of the left speaker. There are all these things that are just those little little things that we just. Um, take for granted and for Disney, I mean, and like uh, going to, I just went to Galaxy's Edge for the first time and uh, their sound design to me is my favorite part of that land and kind of how they built a narrative with sound design. And it's something that Disney's normally so good about that it's, I had several of the same notes that there's just none. There's none. It's just not that there. last sequence isn't epic enough it. because it's missing sound. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's even – Mancini does beautiful scores, but it's even – I have written down one of my least favorite Disney scores in the way of when we think of the orchestration and all these things. It, it just missed a little bit of depth that a lot of, a lot of films have. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. There was definitely it – was a, it was a flat sound, and I don't remember it being a flat sound. But watching it again in 2019, yeah. I re- it really caught my ear as lacking. And we, yeah, I even watched it with like, we have a, you know, an HD sound bar on so our TV we, yeah. and I just, and I just, yeah, it just felt a little, especially cause I just watched little mermaid right before I watched that. So it was one of those that the two back to back, it was just a really interesting kind of an interesting thought. Well, any parting thoughts about Basil for our world today in 2020? I think this one more than any is ripe for some kind of reimagine. Um, I think it set up a world that we didn't get to have, and it's a world that people would love to experience. And I think it would be a great little Disney Plus streaming show, or I think it would be a great movie mm. series. Like, I think it'd be mm-hmm. wonderful. And mm-hmm. um, I think we should have gotten it. And I think, I think I would rather not do a sequel so that we can have consistent actors and not have actors pretending to be the original actors. Um and I think it, I think this movie is ripe for it. I think I think we never really got the full thing. As we've talked about, the, the studio didn't give it its full support, and it kicked off a lot of great things. And I think you could do so much with this without having to spend a significant amount of money for Disney. And I think uh, I think people would be really into it. I you know what I honestly agree a thousand percent, and I hope. I hope there is a lot of uh, great mouse detective in our in our future because also just that classic mystery story and everybody's so interested in true crime right now that I think it actually would blend in and actually make a really interesting set of films. Well, Even it's if they, not you know, a Sherlock story. Like he's not supposed no. to be Sherlock Holmes, which is what I find so interesting. Like he is yeah. still someone else. Like Sherlock Holmes exists in that universe, and that to me is so interesting to explore. Absolutely. Well, Ned, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Do you have anything to plug for the audience? Oh my God, I have so many things. I'll do it so fast. So my company is called Charging Moose Media. You can find us online at chargingmoosemedia.com or chargingmooseny on all the social media networks. There you can find Encounter Party, which we just talked about, which you can find at encounterparty.com or at encounterparty everywhere. Uh, On some places, actually, it's at 
uh, encounter underscore party because someone already had my stuff. Uh, you can find also on our website um, my action comedy rock musical mockumentary web series about New York City vampire slayers, The Hunted Encore. There are two seasons available. It has won over 75 awards at over 50 film festivals worldwide and ended the 2018 circuit, uh, ranked fourth in the USA, 27th in the world for the web series World Cup. Uh, it's a great show, features uh, uh, Broadway actors, up and coming musical theater composers, and a rock score uh, about a fake documentary about vampire slayers. Come check us out. We'd love to chat with you. You can find me. I'm at Ned Donovan on all the platforms. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. So, like, tweet at me, talk to me. You can find me on Podchaser and uh, check out Encounter Party. It's available wherever you're listening to this show right now. Check out Living in Fantasy, also available right now. Uh, and when this is releasing, Encounter Party will be about to be releasing our second season. So, start listening to get caught up. Yes, you guys need to get on the level because Ned is the real deal. And I'm so happy we were able to introduce those of you that might not have uh, known who he was yet. So, Ned, thanks so much again for joining me. It's always a delight. Well, thank you, good sir. And uh, thanks for having me because I love this film. Thanks again for tuning in, Dreamers. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to tell all your friends on social media. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then jump on over to our Patreon, where donations for as little as $5 a month get you bonus episodes, lots of discounts, and even some free goodies. For more information on this episode and all of our episodes, you can find show notes and research references on our website, dolewhipanddreamspod.com. Now, next episode will be practically perfect in every way, when I'm joined by actress Meredith Doyle to discuss the crowning jewel of Walt Disney's career, Mary Poppins. Until next time, dreamers, may your days be filled with Dole Whip and dreams.